Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Another tragic mass shooting has many asking an all-too-familiar question, how could this happen again? Why was an odd behavior from a shooter flagged? Families in Uvalde, Texas are reeling right now after 19 children and two adults were killed all in one classroom after a shooter was able to legally purchase two rifles within days of him turning 18. Relatives and former friends say the shooter was bullied for a speech impediment and did not have a good relationship with his mother. We're also getting more details about police response and timelines that are changing. For more on all this, we'll speak to Sylvia Foster-Frau, national reporter at The Washington Post. So as far as the gunman Salvador Ramos is concerned, um, I spoke to a couple of his friends, or I I should say former friends, because both recounted that he started changing. His behavior was changing in recent years that kind of spread them apart. But, you know, before that, he was kind of just like another, just another kid in Uvalde. They went to elementary school together as they grew up. You know, they would play video games, Fortnite and Call of Duty, play basketball out in the park. I mean, just like really typical stuff that any kid does and that any kid would do in in Uvalde, Texas. Um, And then things kind of started to change. It sounds like it was around high school. There was a couple of instances, some weird stories. Uh, This is coming from uh, Santos Valdez Jr., also 18, one of his friends, as you mentioned. And he said that one time he showed up to the park, a bunch of scratches on his face. And he said, uh, oh, uh, my cat did it or a cat did it or something. And then later on, he fessed up and told him the truth and said he had done it with knives over and over just for fun. That was exactly right. And it, you know, it really was disturbing to Valdez, obviously, and not something that you know, he would ever do or, or most folks would consider doing. And I think it was, you know, looking back for him, one of those many signs. He was also just getting kind of more aggressive in general, shooting BB guns at random strangers, egging cars. He began to dress differently, all in black with these huge kind of military style boots and leather and letting his hair grow long. Photos of knives and weapons were posted on social media over and over again. One of the friends or former friends I spoke to, Stefan Garcia, he was saying that he had at one point thought, well, maybe the weapons are for hunting because, you know, we're in Texas and going to the shooting range and going hunting 
isn't uncommon. And Ramos had said at one point that he was going to do that with his uncle sometime earlier this year. And so he wondered, like, maybe it's just that, you know, Um, but obviously that was not the case. You know, as I mentioned, we, we don't really have a clear motive yet on what's happening. That's why we're having to delve into social media and obviously talk to acquaintances and former friends and all. Uh, when we talk about, you know, what happened in Buffalo, right? The, the shooter there had a mm. manifesto. You know, we saw things that he was posting online. It, it was a clear picture, right? A racist attack motivated by that. And we just don't have that clear picture here. So that's why we have to look into his past and see what's happening. Reports also said that he was uh, bullied and bullied everywhere, right? Social media, over gaming, everything. Um, uh, I guess he had a, a speech impediment, a lisp when he was younger. That's exactly right. I also helped out in covering the Buffalo shooting. And, you know, it couldn't have been clearer with that manifesto in hand, you know, the exact kind of racist attempt of targeting those black residents. This is really different. We don't have some clear manifesto that's laying out a reason, at least that has not been made available yet. And so all we can do, like you said, is piece together these things. He was bullied for a long time, according to his friends. He had a list. It kind of painted this picture that he was kind of an outcast. He was not in the in crowd in school. He was kind of this nobody, as as someone referred to him. And at the same time, it sounds like he was also struggling with aspects of his home life um, with his mother, who he lived with kind of on and off. He ended up going to his grandmother's for a while towards the end and I think had, had maybe alternately lived there before. And so, you know, you start to wonder if all of these things added together. And then on top yeah. of that, you know, then you have the Texas gun laws and the way that that plays into it. Yeah, you know, uh, briefly on the on the on the home life, right? A lot of questions start swirling around all over the place. The people that know him, why didn't you say something? If you can see a deterioration in a person, disturbing things that are happening, it's up to the responsibility of the people around him to notify others of that. But the home life didn't seem like it was there. I guess reports are saying that his mother was a, a drug user. That's why he moved in with the grandparents. You know, I saw an interview with his grandfather, the shooter's grandfather basically saying, you know, I didn't notice anything. I didn't really talk to him much other than kind of quick pleasantries. And it really seemed like nobody was paying attention to him on that side of things. Yeah, and that that part's really sad, right? You wonder how many folks aren't being checked in on the way they should. One of his friends said that he would try to call him. He moved away his sophomore year and he would try to call him. But that um, at that point, Ramos had really distanced himself from him and would kind of shut down his conversations quickly. And so he couldn't really get through to him. But he said, he told me that he kind of felt like he was his closest friend and kind of his lifeline to normalcy. And as soon as he moved away, that his friend Ramos like really had had nothing else there for him. Yeah, I, I, you know, I guess in all of this, it seemed like from reports, the grandmother was the only one that was maybe contacting police and whatnot. And, you know, obviously she suffered from his wrath as well, getting shot in the face and all very unfortunate there. And, you know, so let's talk a little bit about the gun angle now, because obviously calls for gun control, uh, expanded background checks, you know, all of this stuff swirls around immediately in the aftermath of these things. And uh, we're hearing the reports that he was able to buy these two AR-15 style rifles days after his 18th birthday. It it almost seemed in some ways that he was waiting to turn 18 to be able to, um, what you can do in Texas, legally purchase them. And there were two of those semi-automatic rifles, and it looks like one was left in the car and one was the one that was used to commit the, the horrible atrocity. And so with that, you know, come the same questions that we see time and time again, which is, could this have been prevented if gun laws were tighter in the state? 
four in the country. The governor, uh, Greg Abbott, was given a press conference earlier, and he kind of alluded to some of that. He said there's a lot of bigger cities, L.A., Chicago, New York, that have these type of red flag laws and other things on the books, and that there's still shootings happening all the time, uh, just kind of signaling there's no appetite, at least there in Texas, to reform any gun laws, which is where a lot of people are going to. A lot of people are calling for you know, we even saw, I think, uh, Beto O'Rourke, who's running against him, kind of try to storm the stage and, you know, make a scene saying, you're not giving us anything. And then there was shouting back and forth and also obviously a very fraught topic there of, of uh, gun control issues. Right. Yeah. And, you know, in, in 2021, the gun laws in Texas were loose and even further to allow for a permitless carry. Um, and that was, you know, just two years after there were mass shootings in El Paso and in Odessa. But I think in total, 30 people were killed. And so we've seen this already, right, where a mass shooting is actually followed by loosened gun laws and what they call kind of this constitutional carry. And so I think there is for a lot of folks who are hoping for a stricter gun control measures, like there, there's really not a lot of hope with the Texas state that that would happen. You know, and all of this, we don't really want to lose track of the victims. Obviously, that is the most heartbreaking part. You know, all the families and and friends and everything involved in this. 19 kids killed. They were all in a fourth grade class. In the same fourth grade class, he barricaded himself in there and started shooting at people. People tossed the word around evil a lot. And that's, I mean, it's just so hard to swallow how he did this. I think there were 17 other uh, uh, people that were injured in all of this as well, but credit to uh, the first responders there, officers, we heard Border Patrol agents might have been involved too, and a very close-knit community, you know, they had to get in there and, and break down windows and eventually kill him. I mean, just trying to picture all of that is just so hard to wrap your mind around and just so disturbing to think what those folks saw when they got in that classroom. But you had 10-year-old, 9-year-old kids that were in this classroom and two teachers and their whole families, you know, that sent their kids to school that day like any other day that were looking forward to the summer vacation ahead and to have something happen like this. I mean, it's just, it really is every parent's worst nightmare. Definitely. And uh, again, just trying to understand why this could have happened. That's why we're talking about the shooter's past and all. But again, we don't want to lose sight of of these victims and their families, and our hearts do definitely go out to them. Sylvia Foster-Frau, national reporter at The Washington Post, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Next, we'll talk about rebound COVID. It's an issue that's been popping up for some getting sick, But it's also happening to people that were treated with the antiviral Paxlovid. Some are getting better and testing negative, only to rebound with symptoms and test positive after the illness has dissipated. And it's causing the CDC to change its guidelines and tell people with rebound symptoms to isolate for another five days. For what to know about all this, we'll speak to Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. What I actually didn't realize until I started reporting this is this post-COVID rebound has been a thing all along. A small percentage of people have apparently recovered from COVID, even tested negative for a couple of days, and then got symptoms again and often tested positive. So a doctor I spoke to said he's seen this in maybe two, three, four percent of his patients all along since 2020. So what's not clear is whether what we're seeing with this drug is specific to the drug, if it's more people on the drug who are getting this, or if it's just the same thing that we're seeing normally, but because people are tracking themselves more carefully, that we're becoming more aware of it in connection with tax limits. Right? Yeah, it's pretty interesting because, I, I mean, I, I, I went two and a half years not going right without <laughs> getting sick with anything for you. or even getting COVID. Mm-hmm. 
and it recently caught up with me and it kind of kicked my butt, you know, but I was contemplating, should I go to the doctor and maybe get some, a course of these antivirals? I decided against it only because I wanted to tough it out. You know, I didn't think I needed it. It wasn't that bad. But then, yeah, you go back and, and you start seeing these things. But So tell me about what the CDC said, because they're changing some of the guidelines saying you should isolate again if, if you get that rebound. Right. One of the open questions has been when you have COVID, should you test before you go back out into the world? So I recently had COVID also. I was testing positive on a rapid test for 11 days yeah. after I had COVID. And I was very careful in that time frame. Even though after five, I was allowed out in public, I was very vigilant about a mask and I really did try to avoid enclosed spaces for those 11 days. But in the past, the CDC has said five days of isolation is enough, then wear your mask for another five and then you're good. With Paxlovid, because people are testing so much, they're seeing that they are going negative and then positive again. CDC says if that happens, you should start the isolation period all over again. But honestly, we, we just don't know. <laughs> there's not enough data to really say there's one study that found that somebody who had this rebound infected their family members. So it's possible to be contagious with this rebound. In most cases, I don't think I've, I've asked several people, they said they never heard of a hospitalization from a rebound. Mm -hmm. It seems to be sort of a lesser symptom or your body's just getting rid of the last dregs of the virus. So it's just not clear how dangerous that period is. But in an abundance of caution, CDC is saying that you should isolate if you're positive. Right. And that's one, and that's one of the criticisms that comes out of it, right? Should we right. be changing public policy because of this? I guess, as you mentioned, right, the study that was cited by the CDC was really just a report of a single case of a rebounding patient passing on the virus. Is that enough to, you know, apply that to everybody? I guess when you're being super right. cautious, yes. But again, the criticism is, should that be changing public policy? And again, I mean, some of it is common sense versus public policy. You know, if you're testing positive, there's a chance you're contagious. If you can possibly stay home and avoid other people, it just seems like the sensible thing to do. Not everybody can afford the test or can afford to stay home. In those cases, people should be really vigilant about wearing a mask until they're sure they're not contagious. Yeah, one of the things when the Paxlovid came out, obviously, right, everybody was saying it was a huge breakthrough, miraculous, that it was so effective, right, cutting the risk of hospitalizations and death by 89%. Everybody was way on board, but you know now we have the stories about the rebound. As you said, it's happening with people that aren't even taking Paxlovid. But we're also uh, tell me if you've heard of this. People are calling it Paxlovid mouth. Also, uh, complaining of a like a bitter metallic taste. Somebody said it was like grapefruit mixed with soap that they're getting when, when they're on the drug. I mean, those kinds of side effects are fairly typical with drugs. I think with certain drugs, so I'm not surprised by that. And everything you said about Paxlovid is still true. It's very effective at preventing hospitalizations. The real world data seems to be holding, to be exactly repeating what they saw in the trials. So all of that is true. It's still a great drug if you're at high risk. I, I think some of the differences that we're now, so many more people are taking it now. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not just the people who are immunocompromised or over or 65 who are taking it, but even people like you who, who are mostly healthy who are considering it. So I think that maybe some of the explanation is just that so many more people are taking it that we're seeing, you know, the variation that's typical with, with any drug or any situation. Right, exactly, because the uh, administration started those test-to-treat programs, right, where you, if you get right. uh, tested and you test positive, they might send you home immediately with that stuff. So you're right, a lot of people are, a lot more people are taking it, and we're starting to see a little bit more of the, the real-world effects of what's going on. 
And again, it's great. I don't want to be in a hospital. You know, I mean, I think it's <laughs> terrific if it's saving people from, from being in the hospital. But the more marginal benefit you get, the more these side effects matter. You know, if you weren't going to end up in a hospital anyway, then maybe having a lousy taste in your mouth and having to isolate for an extra few days is a bigger burden. And those are just things that we're learning as, as we see this drug in action. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye out for how things develop with Paxlovid. I know it's helping a lot of people still in the long run, as you mentioned. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love Selena? Like, really love? Whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stan the Queen of Tejano. And Stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. How old are you really? There's a growing interest in your biological age versus your chronological age. The idea behind it is that your cells and organs age differently and knowing your biological age can help you postpone or avoid some age-related illnesses. There's no current standard way to measure it, but scientists and startups are developing ways through blood tests or saliva tests. For more on all this, we'll speak to Betsy Morris, senior writer at the Wall Street Journal. Biological age is really the, as you said, the age of your, of your biology. It's the age of your body. And it's different scientists measure it in different ways. That's part of what makes it a little bit controversial. But the notion or the concept is that you really, your health really is probably linked more closely to the age of your heart, how your heart is aging or how your brain is aging. And so the significance is that if you know, if you have a way, if you as a person, lay person, a consumer, have a way to measure or know your biological age, then you can take actions or change your behavior in a way to lower it, make yourself younger and healthier. Yeah, some have uh, described it kind of as like a credit score for your body, right? So you know what's coming up, you can plan for these things. Now, the question that I have now is, is how do you calculate something like this? And this is where some of the disagreements fall into place. There's a couple of startups that are trying to do this through blood markers. Other are trying to do kind of DNA swabs from the inside of your cheek. But how do we calculate what your biological age could be? 
again, there's there's no standard. You know, there's no like FDA standard of how to measure this. So you have a lot of really good scientists who've been working on it. They use different means, different techniques to, you know, to measure it. And as you said, I mean, some look for changes on the DNA in your blood. And the reason for that is that, you know, different things do can affect your genes. It can affect your gene expression. So it really can make a difference in the rest of your body. Others, there's one that I know of that looks at saliva. Another one looks at sugar molecules called glycans. And there's also a tracker (laughs) that will take in all the information from all of the different devices that you have measuring your heart rate, your glucose, um, whatever, take in all that information. And in that particular case, it comes up with your biological age based on comparing you and a lot of the things about your body with patterns they've found in the world's big bio banks, the data they found. So anyway, yeah, there are many ways. It's not, yeah, you know, and, and there's a lot there are that, many legitimate ways. The problem is there's there's no agreement really. Right. And there's a lot that goes into it, right? We, you know, some of this uh, we're talking about genes and gene expressions and, and what's happening there, but also the other environmental stuff, right? Your sleep, your exercise, your diet, all of that really contributes to it. But the other part of this, right, is, you know, be wary of kind of that snake oil part of it, right? There's a lot of people on the other side of things that say, you know, this isn't really going to help you avert some type of illness or whatever. You know, just knowing biologically you're a little bit younger or older isn't going to do much. You know, if you even if you do that perfect optimization of the sleep diet and all that stuff, it might not change that much. You know, the bottom line in this, as in if you're not even thinking about biologically, the bottom line is you've got to make really dramatic behavior changes in order to really affect your longevity or your ability to kind of stave off age-related disease, right? Like heart disease or dementia. One scientist I interviewed said, like, if you eat a donut, it's not going to automatically make you, you know, make your biological age older. It doesn't work that way. It really takes a lot of incremental change over time. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this notion develops a little bit more. I mean, right now there's a lot of startups and companies working on making these tests more available, and uh, there might be kind of an industry that grows out of this. So we'll keep an eye out for all of it. Betsy Morris, senior writer at The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Don't forget to join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A a podcast. podcast! Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love Love at at First first listen. Listen. 
This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 